Hello, everybody. Welcome today with the Learning with Wool podcast show, whatever you want to call it. I appreciate everybody leaving reviews the last couple of weeks and letting me know what they think about how we've been going about things. Uh, today, we're joined with Dom from D-Science Ventures. He's one of the first people we had on the podcast as well. There's going to be a bunch of new people coming on uh, pretty soon, which is pretty exciting. Um, but today, we're getting into what Dom's been working on, what Deep Science Ventures has morphed into, uh, how they've handled you know, the COVID stuff from 2020, what they want to happen in 2021. You get to hear what their focuses are, a little bit of their thesis. What Dom is particularly passionate about is really exciting to get into, but we're getting all to that today. So let's uh, just jump right into it, have some fun. It's a great conversation. And uh, if you like this, let me know. I, I always appreciate feedback. But um, Dom, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you personally, how have, how, how has your passion for, for making a change evolved over the last couple of years? Like, how has it, where has it been leading you? That's a fantastic opening question. I mean, when I started this journey, I was already pretty fired up about what we're working on. And so we're working on trying to change the rate and efficacy of uh, applied science and specifically venture focused science companies. And the more time I spend in the space, the more convinced I am that the systems that underlie our innovation um, and the way innovation gets into the economy are just so thoroughly broken, um, but that they're tractable. So it's, you know, I, I think you, you'll recognize this from working on hard problems that the more you learn, the, the more challenging the problem appears, but the more opportunities for entry points into it you get. So I've never been more excited about the sort of global resolve to, to, to solve some of these problems than I have been today. So we're working in healthcare, climate and intelligence and there just seems like increasing resource and increasing focus on increasing the efficiency of our pipelines. Um, and that applies all the way through the, through the process of innovation, from the way that individuals are trained, to the way that founding teams are managed, to the way that concepts are generated, to the way that knowledge is managed and intellectual property is, is created. So I just think there's like a lot of stuff to work on. Yeah, no, it sounds awesome. How, how has your role changed? Are you still doing the, the same type of stuff, but bigger and more refined? Or are you, are you doing anything different? So I'm focusing um, almost exclusively on climate stuff at the moment. And that's been a specialization that I've developed over the last couple of years since we last spoke, I think. Um, mm -hmm. DSB itself started as a sector agnostic, discipline agnostic entity. And we've become more and more focused on building really deep expertise in different areas. And so we, you know, I mentioned earlier that we do kind of climate health and intelligence and climate's made up of energy and agriculture for us. And I personally spend a lot of time and energy and work closely with our team in agriculture. Um, and so my role has changed in that uh, I spend all my time exclusively talking about those concepts. Mm -hmm. So the things that I've spent a lot more time thinking about recently are the way that private markets operate with respect to climate outcomes the different technologies required to reduce emissions and remediate emissions, the different things that will replace energy sources like petrochemical feedstocks and fuels. Um, I think those, those are like the, the main things that have been occupying me, but I've also got kind of an unexpected exposure into things like on the agriculture side, pollination and its role in potentially improving yield beyond what can be done with other means of, uh, of stimulating growth in plants. Mm -hmm. And in particular, like insect embryology, <laughs> um, ending up down very like specific niches that appear to be kind of global industrial bottlenecks and forestry and like learning a lot more about the way that trees work. Um, really fascinating. Uh, a lot of the similar uh, passions to myself as well. I, I really love those those topics. What what about them? What about them like beats true for you? Like what, what made you want to get into those arenas? Like just you personally and specializing in them. Is there something about them in particular that you are really love or, or really excited to see happen? Or is there an element about it that like you, when you're at a cocktail party or, you know, with your friends that you tell them about that, you just, you know, get like, you know, bright eyed and get really excited about. I'm, I'm really curious, like what, what drove you to, to, to those areas just for you personally? Oh man, I'm so many things. So I've, I've always cared a lot about um, the environment. Um, I, was that, I was that really annoying vegetarian in university. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm generally driven by uh, like extreme frustration, um, which I think is like the ugliest motivational factor. I probably talked about it last time. Mm -hmm. um, and nowhere is working on 
hard science, early stage innovation more frustrating than in energy and in climate, given the kind of global intention and global um, consensus about what needs to change. And the nevertheless gargantuan fragmentation and the massive barriers to entry in that sector. Mm-hmm. So like think about the energy sector. Who acquires companies in the energy sector? Who acquires technology companies in the energy sector? When was the last time an energy company was acquired um, that was doing something good for the the climate? Probably the only example people can think of that stands out is Nest. And that wasn't even in the last like three years. Hmm. Um, So (laughs) something's horribly wrong. Um, If you want to drive investment into a sector, someone has to be buying the things that give the investors back their money. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people starting climate funds at the moment who've got no idea how they're going to get their money back. They have absolutely no thesis on acquisition. And, and the reality as to why companies aren't, won't get acquired and don't get acquired is to do with the way the energy sector is structured. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the jargon that we uh, talk about is, the, is that energy is a complex embedded legacy sector in that the supply chain is extraordinarily, dis- uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily um, complex. There are lots and lots of mediating steps um, and market power exists only in the very, very biggest incumbents. Mm. The, the, like another term that's used often is to talk about minimum efficient scale, like the minimum scale at which you can operate efficiently. Mm-hmm. And in energy, it, it, turn, it, like, it ends up being in the kind of millions of barrels a day if you're oil or like, mm. um, or, or like gigawatts of, of energy if you're in the grid. And so as a technology company you have to try and persuade these guys to implement something grid scale or a uh, network scale um, or you need to fight against market distortions that prop up incumbents or you need to try and persuade investors that you're not going to need loads of capital at the proof of concept stage and so um, the reason why i'm working in energy and in specifically climate is because i find it extraordinarily frustrated and fr- frustrating and broken mm-hmm. and then you asked me another part of this question which is like what do i get excited about and like yeah. why do i have optimism in this well the interesting thing about systems is that they often, because of their complexity, have these emergent, um, these emergent properties. Mm-hmm. You can normally kind of zoom those back into critical intervention points. So whilst it's rare to find a place in the system that you can intervene that will cause a cascade of innovation and change, they do seem to exist. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example of something that we think about um, at the moment that I'm quite excited about, but that we won't be able to talk about publicly in detail for a few months, which is this... Um, I've been working for about a year on this concept of trying to um, make it possible for people who currently hold hydrocarbon assets to decarbonize. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you've already sunk lots of money into, an, into a hydrocarbon reservoir, like an oil reserve or a gas, uh, or a gas well, or you've bought uh, like a field that you expect to frack? Um, you basically have to produce it and sell it to someone. So then someone's going to buy it because the price would reduce to a point where it's valuable for something. And probably the, the organizations that end up holding all of these assets are the ones that have avoided being regulated. So they, are, they exist outside of the EU and the most progressive uh, climate uh, regulating countries. And so actually, you can't really avoid emissions from those hydrocarbons unless you make it possible for them to, to prof- the, someone to profit from those hydrocarbons without emissions. So our solution, which was like a, one of those crazy ideas that normally dies on the whiteboard, was that it's probably possible to take your entire petrochemical refinery process and shove it down the reservoir and then just extract something clean at the end and leave all the byproducts in the reservoir of the well. Hmm. And in the last three months, we've, we've explored literally hundreds of different combinations of technologies and read like thousands of papers. And we've got this dedicated team and they have worked so hard exploring all of the possible routes through this problem. What feedstocks do you start with? What reservoir types? What kinds of combinations of technologies get you to to an end product that you can sell in in the places where they want to be bought? And we actually have a design that I'm just, I think might actually work. So um, that's super exciting because that's one of those things where you could convert, if it worked, like, you know, within 10 years, you could convert every oil and gas super major into a clean energy producing company at, profitably for them Mm -hmm. so things like that where it looks like those companies are never going to change they're just going to sell their assets to someone else who's never going to change um there's like hope in those systems Mm -hmm. um i can talk about one more example if if it's not too much of a rant no no no. i'm I'm, I'm really excited about this no keep going the other thing that we were looking at was direct air capture Mm -hmm. um 
And hopefully the the founders of carbon carbon engineering aren't listening to this and Bill Gates isn't listening either because he's a big backer of that technology. But I'm just extraordinarily skeptical about that company. Um, And it scares me because it's one of those poster children for climate tech. But what I see in that company is is, is a company that is, you know, burning natural gas uh, in order to get really high temperatures in order to remove carbon dioxide from the air um, and sequester it in, into a fuel, which is then going to be re- released. So you have like a carbon emitting product, net mm. carbon positive product, um, which doesn't look like it can, you know, it, like everything about it seems to be kind of a red flag. You need, to, it's going to, it's just a kind of reiteration of centralized large scale hot chemical engineering that got us into this problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I see this a lot in climate as people trying to solve the existing problem with the thing that's problematic. Like in, we can talk mm-hmm. about it separately, but like people trying to solve climate change and market externalities, market failures with new markets without thinking about how to, how to change underlying issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but in carbon engineering, that, that was like one of those problems that really um, frustrated me. And, and I, I, we kept running up against this problem, which is that carbon doesn't, carbon dioxide doesn't seem to be sufficiently valuable to make it worth doing in most places in the world and so you're not going to get wide-scale adoption of that technology outside of regulated areas or places with really good um financial incentives which make up like less than three or four percent of emissions worldwide and so what we set out to do is build a company to capture carbon on a very small scale very efficiently with no high temperatures at a very low cost, such that the cost of capturing it was lower than the value of carbon dioxide as a gas, as a commodity. Um, and that was, you know, like the aim. And it was kind of, we set it out as a as, as design constraints and didn't really actually have that much hope of hitting it. But we brought in a founder called Gail Goodbye Shaw. And he woke up from a, from, a, from a dream one day and he had just come up with the concept. I think this is what happens if you spend all day reading papers from lots of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what he claims happens is that he just woke up and he just had like fully born in his mind a concept for a device that could do this and it was inspired by the way biology works but it had the kind of engineering capability uh, of a chemical system mm-hmm. and so we funded that company in um september the company that we built together we created a founding team for him um and they just got proof of principle in the lab demonstrating that the mechanism they're working on is effective it's like within you know within six weeks of of, of doing the initial investment um, and there are in some really, really interesting conversations about commercial partners to scale it up as well. So I, I you know, like that's another one where if you can get scalable, low cost, low energy carbon capture to work in a decentralized way, um, there's actually probably hope for hitting 1.5 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. The, uh, when you're when you're doing the R&D with all those different partners, how do you um, how do you decide when you've had enough information to test an idea to see what results look back? I've noticed when I've done my own R&D on papers, some people will say like, you know, if you do A, B, and C, you'll get these results. But even in replicating them, the results tend to change, sometimes quite drastically. So I'm curious, like, do you, did you do incremental tests to see if um, what you're reading was true or if you could find a different result? Uh, and if so, what were the, was there like a, a threshold point that you and the partners would come to to make that decision to make an experiment? Or was it more like a mono, like you, you broken it apart, then added them together to like a monolith? And then tested that to see if it work. So, so this, so we we do things with a binary cutoff, which I think is a little bit um, controversial, in that we don't do the sort of build iterate build iterate um, type approach with hardware um, in in the sciences uh, at at DSV at least. We wait until the team has what we believe to be a kind of critical mass of evidence on the commercial and technical, and then we spin them out with an inception stage check. And one of the things that that ensures that we do is that we have a thick enough thesis, as in like there's enough, um, there's a plan and there's enough backup plans and there's enough evidence for the plan A um, that we're confident that one of them is going to work with the money we give them, you know, close to 100% confidence. Um, and that strategy has worked out pretty much every time so far. Um, the, the other thing is that we're, you know, we're very rarely doing something with a characterization step. Um so often the things we're, we're adding together into product have been, replica- have been replicated in other environments. Um, in the case of our carbon capture company, they actually took a component that's been used on an industrial scale uh, and found a way to reapply it um, and, ch- and re-engineer it in lots and lots of clever ways to make it um, 
uh, an appropriate direct air capture system. Mm -hmm. And so the technical risk there is surprisingly low, despite it being a really radical solution. I think that's generally true, not just in climate, but in the work we do in pharmaceuticals as well. Like um, we just spun out a company called Reflection TX, or uh, and they're working in ALS and Alzheimer's, and that takes a well-proven, uh, like a well-proven approach in uh, treating one set of diseases and identify the pattern with another set of diseases mm. and find a way of modifying it to be appropriate. So it requires novel intellectual property to do that. Um, it uses published work that's been shown to work in clinical trials in humans, um, but applies it to a completely new disease with an enabling step that's been shown in another context altogether. Mm. So it's like a really common pattern at DSV. And it comes out of the fact that the founders, are, you know, if you stop people going into the lab, you force people to find evidence and to check all the ways around and to find the easiest way of doing something. Mm -hmm. um, there's always a temptation if you're like a very hands-on person to just start building and see where mm -hmm. you get. But if you think about, um, if you think about starting a science company is trying to find a, um, a global maxima, like a best case um, solution. If you think about how quickly you can move up and down a technology landscape if you're prototyping hardware versus how quickly you can move up and down it if you're prototyping just with a technical narrative like stringing together hypotheses the speed the speed difference is just uh, is just it's like massive you can move entirely between completely different scientific paradigms week on week if you're forced to be on paper as soon as you move into the lab into hardware you make hard commitments as to which mm. direction you're going in including team and including investors um so i think it's one of those things where we implemented a design constraint in the way we build companies and it, and maybe it's a little bit of post-rationalization, but it seems to work in a really favorable way for us. Yeah. It's basically, um, it's kind of like you're, you're measuring twice, but, and then cutting once, but you're measuring more than twice, like 10 or different times to see what might, what might the cut look like to then move into cutting it. So you don't waste resources. So all, all you're really costing is the people's time, which is, you know, relatively cheap depending on where they live. And um, the resources to get internet access <laughs> to see the resources and stuff like that. And there's a lot of resources online so you can get all the latest publications. And all, a lot of those scientists are uh, very open to talking to you and answering questions. So the, 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 the cost to innovate with that paradigm is, I imagine, extremely, extremely low. And then when you go into it, you have, like you're saying, a couple of contingencies so that you can just like, uh, uh, not brute force, but, you know, because I imagine it's a little bit more elegant than that. But um, you go, in, go into it very purposely. Like you've already kind of mapped out like this doesn't work this would, would what you'd see or if i try this is might you know this will be about what you look like what, what what you should look for and that type of thing so um there's what there's one more thing on this which is that say i'm working in the same scientific um field as you and i have a competing theory what i'll first try to do is replicate your finding um and then i'll try to test my own what happens at dsv is very rarely that our companies are competing with the academics whose work they're trying to replicate in any case it's typically because you're combining it with something from somewhere else, it's typically uh, tangential. And so it's perceived by the academic who wrote the original paper as additional, as in, if they succeed, there will be an additional impact, which doesn't compete with my own research, um, which I can then you know, include in my impact stats at the end of year. Mm. And so we find that a lot of the time that academics tend to be more uh, enthusiastic and helpful in supporting our teams than they did when I used to work in tech transfer and we tried to get them to support postdocs from someone else's lab in the same university you know um it's interesting the they're like aligning the incentives to be on their side and just to not see it adversarial uh, when kind of a broad, broad question to take a step back the uh, I'm always curious what you know the the I think it's Einstein but you know like Einstein gets a lot of stuff so you never know if this is him but I uh like two things. So one, Einstein is supportedly to have said that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions you ask. And that if you had an hour, like with a, like he had an hour deadline and a gun to his head to solve a problem, he'd spend, uh, you know, 55 minutes defining the question, five minutes solving it. And so I'm always really curious, like, what are the the questions that you ask yourself or that you encourage the the startups and the founders on your, on it, that, that go through DSV to ask themselves to make sure that they're on the right path? Are there, are there, you know, you know, uh, any like anything like that? Any uh, typical questions that you tend to like to use for yourself to find in the path, or that you found to be very effective for startups to find their paths? I mean, I ask why quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't that think works. That's that unusual. Um, and what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel like 
you can you can remain uh, you can basically maintain the time for which you are not perceived as a total idiot for quite a long time by just asking those two questions and by the time you've asked them enough times you can repeat back what they've said and, and you can avoid uh, betraying the fact that you know nothing about the subject matter um no i love that i love that idea i mean I, I think that's one of those cliches that people hear a lot, but that nevertheless people don't apply because they'll then the next question you'll ask them is like, so what do you need to start a company? And people are like an idea. <laughs> well, actually, if you have a specific idea, then um, you've probably already forgotten the question you asked in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, an idea that's a particular technology, you actually don't really care about the question. You want to know um, you're, you're, you're the guys with 42 trying to find the original question. So um, what questions do I ask? Um, so like when I'm recruiting people, I often want to know what they care about. Mm. Um, I, th- I think this is a, a surprisingly difficult factor about the modern world is that for some reason, pe- like people have stopped caring about caring about things. Mm. Um, like I found at university, there was just this immense weight of apathy and people just kind of would wait to see which recruitment agency reached out first and then they would go to the interview and they just kind of be carried along. And I actually think it's much harder to change what you care about than it is to change what you have expertise in. And so it makes sense to spend more time thinking about that. Um, Because once you work out something that you care about, you can typically develop some expertise. I think like one thing I feel very strongly is that most people can get to the cutting edge of a field they really care about in in a year and they could probably get like significantly beyond it within three years and so that's why I think like a PhD length is quite good because you can you can pretty much guarantee um a decent shot at answering a difficult question um other things I often ask about uh what has failed before so we spend like a disproportionate amount of time looking at graveyards in, in a particular area to understand what reasons things died and then often someone will come back and say oh it was team or it was timing and it's really important not to accept those as answers (laughs) Uh, like you have to really really understand what timing means so it's like I spend a lot of time trying to understand why companies have failed what was wrong about the timing what has changed um, in the state of the art so what was the status quo what's the status art state of the art what has failed what has worked what's analogous to the situation what's the best case that we could possibly hope for here? Like, what does the best conceivable outcome look like? What are we really dreaming of when we, when we try to get there? What are the constraints that stop us achieving that? That's the kind of like standard pathway that I'll take um, founders through at DSV. And we typically operate that, that question pathway at lots of different levels all the way down to the company. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I think, I think you're hundred percent right. The, you got to start with, you know, what your why is like, why do you care about it? What your passion is? Everything else is easier from there. Like, what do you actually deeply, if, is it climate change? There's like, you know, like what you're saying, there's tons of stuff you can do. But if you start with like, um, if you're like, you know, you're just, you have a skill set and you just randomly apply it. Like, you're not really going to, eventually like, it's going to grind and you're going to get into hard points and you're like, well, I don't even care about this anyway. You know, like, I'm, I'll go do something else. But if you care about it, you'll, you'll, you'll push through it. You know, learn stuff that allow you to do it in a way that other people can't. Um, there's a lot of really interesting uh, examples of people like just autodidactically teaching themselves things like, you know, Elon Musk, like one of the things when you'd hire people, he would just sit down and like, like, uh, for weeks afterwards, like just like steal their knowledge. Like he'd ask them tons of questions and, you know, pick it up or he'd, or he'd learn it himself. And, and now he, you know, uh, and that type of ethos is, affects his entire, uh, organization, like that type of culture of, of asking questions. Um, Elon Musk is a great example as well. I mean, yeah. like I only learned recently that he's not the founder of Tesla, <laughs> But like it's yeah, right it there over. on the way it's right there on the wikipedia page but like in every article about him it's like elon musk founder of tesla the guys you know like borrowed remorselessly from what was already there um and that's more to his credit you know <laughs> um what was i gonna say yeah i mean like this this thing about um work like working on what you care about and then developing expertise subsequently i i found that especially in dsv's cohorts in the past that's been something that's really driven these founders it's like we built a company called Thermulon that's working on building insulation. And uh, like, how do you get to the point where you really care about building insulation? It's like quite an interesting question. And the assumption that most people will make about the founder, Sam Cryer and his founding team, Alex and Roz, 
is that he did his PhD in building insulation and commercialized it by starting a company. But the reality is he cares about climate and he cares particularly about the fastest, cheapest, easiest ways of solving climate change. And his PhD was actually in solar because he thought that was the way of doing it. And he realized really quickly that the, the way that work was going in academia just wasn't that. <laughs> it wasn't like, he wasn't making an impact there. So when he joined ESV, we spent a lot of time thinking about energy efficiency and that allows you to zoom quickly in on building insulation. Mm-hmm. And the reason you think about energy efficiency is because if you look at the kind of um, emissions abatement curve or like the like the, the cheapest ways of reducing emissions, energy efficiency tends to be the negative cost ones, the ones that actually save you money rather than you know direct air capture where you're spending quite a lot of money to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And from there, he was able to kind of narrow down to a particular type of material that um, he thought would act as a kind of next generation building insulation material after an exhaustive search Um, and he chose aerogel which is actually like a 50 year old concept so like building on your borrowing uh, old um thinking did you ever talk to sam no no i just love aerogel i I used it for something that i was building (laughs) no i was uh i i put into like beehives it works great (laughs) (laughs) it works great it's awesome like you'll have like no deaths in, in winter as long as like you're monitoring for all the, the other details, but it won't be from heat and stuff like that. The humidity is a part of it. But yeah, I just love aerogel. Like well, it's, if, it's old... if, you want, if you want a breathable aerogel, boy, do I have a company for you. You should check out Samulon. <laughs> <laughs> check out uh, Samulon today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will. That'd be awesome. I'll check them out. Uh, I, I think you may have mentioned one of the last times we were speaking to that there was a company like that. Um, mm. The uh, When you... You know, talking about passion and you know, finding what people care about. Do you do you um when you're interviewing people, do you sort for that, or do you find people with talent that maybe aren't that don't have it and and try to reignite it, or do you is that like a sifting mechanism for you? No, and I mean, like this thing about working on what you care about comes out of a um a, like a statistical analysis we did recently, where I looked at the difference between people we made offers to and the people we don't make offers to. And we have decision criteria. So there are like predictable outcomes from that. You know, we choose the people who um, fit to our decision criteria. What I hadn't quite realized is that um, there are two criteria there are two criteria that we only ever accept people who rate highly on, like the very, very highest scores on. Um, and those are um, impact focused and positive thinking mm-hmm. because I don't think you can train someone to care. Like they either care when they get to you or they have to go away and go on a journey and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to believe that they can make an impact too. And again, like it's unlikely that one interview with me as charismatic and persuasive as I am is going to make someone who doesn't believe in themselves, believe in themselves. We just yeah. unfortunately don't have the capacity at DSV to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a problem that I would love to work on more. Um, I think you just need more time than DSV has. Like we have to typically turn a company around from they show up to in one, like on day one and we have a company within 12 months. Um, I think you need like, you know, like a year or so to develop those kinds of long longitudinal personality mindset shifts. So mm-hmm. I would love to start programs that have these longer timeframes that give us the, cap- the capacity and capability to encourage and develop those mindsets in people. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I, I hear it though. When I was doing hiring, um, I, I maybe I looked at like 8,000 or so resumes and had like 1,500 interviews. And one of the first, yeah, I don't know. I, we can go to, I don't want to get into the details, but like, I did a lot. And um and one of the big things is like the, uh, what their focus is and do they give, do they give a care. Right. Um, and like, if you, if you don't care, like it doesn't matter how talented you are, like the, the person who, you know, gives a care is probably going to do more and go further and think about it more creatively and, and come back to it, you know, we you know in a, in a dream with a fully formed, uh, idea and how to solve it. Like, uh, like the person you mentioned earlier, but, um, how did you work out whether or not people cared from their resumes? Oh, uh, so some of the stuff is just like the the trends that they were going on. Like you can jump around a lot, but like there's like usually some key characteristics that they have in there. And then from there, from there, it was more like a technically what they had. And then when I would, I'd email them back and forth a couple of times. And then I'd ask them some kind of like behavioral questions in terms of like what they built and why they built it. And then when I was talking with them, all I did was just re-ask the question uh, in different ways to see if they actually did care about it. Like if someone says, I'm really passionate about A, B, and C, and then you ask some questions about it, but it's only like one layer deep and they haven't asked like three whys. Passion usually means that they're going to go pretty deep on it in- inherently. You don't really need to drive someone like you, like I asked you about, you know, you know, cl- uh, what you care about with climate change. Like five minutes later, you're like, oh, I'm going on a rant. It's like, no, 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 keep going. It's awesome. Like, you know, that you, you can kind of like see it, uh, but you can qualify it. Like resumes, you can't see it inherently. You can see if the technical skills are uh, potentially there. 
and then uh, a quick back and forth in, in an email exchange, like the report. And you can see if, if that's there. And then when you, when you talk to them, it usually comes out. But um, the unfortunate thing is that with, with the, the everything going on in the world, that there is a lot of like BSing that goes on. So like uh, any hiring process, like the hiring process that I, I, I usually uh, suggest, or uh, I think that's really good is, is one that's involved and involves other people so that you can kind of like suss that out. And once you find people that are great, like I've hired people that they um, that I, I knew weren't what we were originally looking for, but they were just so amazing. And w- those skills could be used for other things that so they came in, they learned a different thing and then we, we built stuff together. Um, so finding those great people that have that that passion, that drive and, and the care to make the change that aligns with what you're trying to uh, make the change around, it makes it really easy to do everything else, which I think is exactly what you're saying. <laughs> Um, I can't believe you. I can't believe you looked at what did you say, eight thousand resumes. Yeah, I'm probably lowballing it. I spent a very long time. Well, resumes, LinkedIn profiles, and then I yeah, probably like eight thousand. I did it like like from like from like five in the morning because it's from like California to like Russia and like a number in like uh, Southeast Asia as well. And um, so it was like oh. from five a.m. to like ten p.m. I was having an interview uh, just to make sure I, I had the best team. Although you, you should definitely have told us you're doing that. You know, we built um, a software tool that allows us to um, like scan thousands of profiles and shortlist um, the most entrepreneurial uh, best matches. Um, that's how we recruit. That's because, you know, like we work on these like hyper-specific ideas. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to build a bio-inspired direct air capture company. You can't just put that up on your website and hope the right person applies. Like you have to find the guy yeah. who's built a system that's analogous and there's mm-hmm. probably only four of them in the world. So we had to build software to allow us to do that so that yeah. we didn't have to hire people to, to look at 8,000 CVs. Um, next, stuff time, too. Yeah. next time, next time, I'd love that. That's awesome. The, I also would use Git, GitHub and other things to find uh, analogous projects that would demonstrate it as well. So it wasn't just like strict. It was like it was like a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to just be able to put parameters and you know get people back. Though you can do the same thing with uh, LinkedIn and a couple other uh, online resources. I don't like recruiters though, but that's kind of like a mute point. Um, LinkedIn is LinkedIn search is surprisingly bad. It's yeah, surprisingly it's, bad. It's. Um, it's better than individually, but yeah, it's not, it's not great. I use, um, I mean, there's a reason why I had to go through so many is what I'll say. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a better way. It's the, the way that you're telling me. Um, is it, is it like a freely available software? Is it like people that can listen and can check it out? No. Um, if, people, <laughs> if people desperately, desperately want it, then um, they can try to get us to let them use it. But it's currently used as an internal tool. It's one of those things where oh, okay. I think the most valuable application of this tool is in building companies that will change the world um, mm-hmm. and so that's what we're using it for rather than selling it um, and if there are other people who want to build companies that will change the world then they're a good group of people to reach out to me and and, and we can talk about it sweet yeah uh impact folks is is clear um great i'm glad i know that exists now uh i found great people anyway so it worked out but um, if, if loads of telemarketers get in touch with me because they want to use it for lead gen, then I will be unhappy little. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can't control everything in the world, but only great pe- only people who really want to make an impact contact Dom. Everyone else, he doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. I'm surprised you paid attention this this long into a clip of two pe- uh, me just talking to myself. Um, the, I he, find that it's really helpful. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the so I know you um, for for a bit. You made a change from like a everyone kind of being able to like touch each other, not really, but you know, like in the same location uh, to remote. And so I'm, I'm curious, um, how did that, how did that change how you guys did things? Like, did that really impact things in a, in a big way, especially with like COVID and stuff going on, but just specifically in the, in the remote world, did that, um, yeah, what, what, what changes did you see there in terms of like how you guys operated? Great question. I mean, like, and for, and for clarity's sake, we had a very clear policies on sexual harassment. And so <laughs> just uh, to clear. Un, unrequested touching of each other was, you know, frowned upon um so where we are now is we gave up the lease for our office in may which is uh during the first lockdown in the uk um which was very sad for me because it's the first time i've ever been able to walk you know less than 15 minutes to my office we gave up the lease on that hyper convenient office um and went totally remote and have kind of committed to being um like opt-in in office i think indefinitely at dsv mm-hmm. So now what that means is that mm. instead of requiring people to have to come to London to do to do deep science ventures um, and build companies with us, you can be anywhere in the world. Um, and so as a result, we have at the moment got founders in Boston, Montreal, Chile, uh, Costa Rica, uh, Barcelona, 
uh, like all over the place, basically. Um, and it has been fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so much better. Uh, we have this like ridiculously multicultural team. Team time zones actually turn out to not be a problem as long as you just have like uh, evening meetings for most of your meetings and forces people to have their mornings free, which for a lot of people are the mo- most productive times. So yeah, it's been um, it's been fantastic. Uh, and we were already, you know. Um, Slack and G Suite natives, so we didn't actually have to adopt any new tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are um, pretty good ones. Was there any uh, stress point or pain points in particular that you've that you are currently having that maybe someone listening could uh, offer suggestions? Not really. You know, I think we did a lot less than other people did, um, but I don't feel like we didn't really need to do much. Like mm. we, a lot of people have like daily standups or, um, or or things like that, and like our t- in our team, we have like an online check in you just like mention what you're working on what, what, like that you're there and you can start whenever you want and, and get going as long as we know like when you're online um so it's, it's not been that tough like we a lot of the team was working remotely before lockdown so we haven't really overthought it i guess the um there's a question now coming up which is in the intermediate period where some people will be able like will be able to and want to see each other what's the most efficient way of organizing people to meet each other now that we're globally distributed mm. so that's something that we're working on at the moment and thinking about um but i don't think it's a hard problem and not having an office does unlock like a ridiculous amount of budget yeah like, compared to traveling and staying in a hotel having an office is way more expensive <laughs> so um it's just like we are also very climate centric and so Organizing lots of flights in the future is something that kind of preoccupies us as well. So I don't know actually what we're going to do. We've got mm. a little while to think about it. I think there'll probably be a third lockdown just after Christmas. Yeah, the, um, I think they're working on electric planes. That might be nice. You get some uh, non, you know, normal jet fuel and make it more efficient. I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a long while <laughs> until we have l- like. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just hopeful. Yeah. I'm just hopeful. The um, the. I don't know, they're coming out with vaccines with COVID. I don't know, I'm hopeful on that point too, but uh, avoiding people all the same. Um, These are vaccines that we should have had before the, before <laughs> the coronavirus. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, especially someone in your arena, I imagine you have a lot of really strong opinions on it. The, um, I don't know. Let's not do it. I feel like probably yeah. your listeners have COVID fatigue. Yeah, they're like, yeah. I mean, where I'm at, I'm in, I'm in, I'm a, I'm in Wisconsin, people you can try and stalk me, I guess. Um, and I've noticed like more and more people are just not work, doing the stuff they need to do. It's like, so I think that like COVID fatigue is, is probably a, a, an existing thing. Um, do you, um, how do you, how do you maintain a culture when you work remotely? I mean, for one thing, only selecting people with certain uh, like attitudes and mindset has been important. Um, another thing is that DSV has evolved its own kind of internal semantics and language about things. Um, And that has meant that, you know, like culture seems to arise from those kinds of shared understandings and those shared practices. Um, So we've got like a lot of idiosyncratic definitions and phrases that are used a lot at DSV, different processes. And And that going through these kind of like similar processes with these shared meanings, causes a convergence in terms of um in terms of a culture um it, ma- it makes it possible to avoid the sorts of behaviors that work badly inside of startups and encourage those that lead to really successful companies mm-hmm. um actually like one of the things that we do a lot is draw directly from founders who come and join dsv um, so i think every major strategic shift we've had has been based on the behavior of uh, like one or two founders in that batch rather than what worked for the majority we tend to focus on what worked disproportionately well for the minority and then double down on those on those um on those things and that leads to us adopting a lot of cultural practices behaviors words and languages um recommendations from those individuals mm-hmm. um and then all of that's enshrined in a kind of in a company handbook you know like we copied it we copied everyone else, Netflix and, and everyone else, by having a kind of company handbook, which is in fact not a book, but instead a slide deck um, that tells them what our cultural values are. We worked really hard on deciding our cultural values. Um, we made sure that, I think the thing that I'm really proud of is that we made sure that for every cultural value we chose, we gave up something else. 
So, you know, like I think most cultural values end up being empty because they just are good and mm. they're therefore meaningless. Um, if you have to make a choice uh, in, uh, in adopting a cultural value, like a real choice, like you give something up, then I think it's a, a meaningful cultural value. So an example would be one of our cultural values is uncompromising. So if you are uncompromising, then you are not compromising. You are not necessarily the kind of person who's going to be consensus seeking. You're going to be unrelenting. You're going to be kind of actually maybe like a pain in the ass to be around because you're not going to stop until you find the thing that absolutely works. And sometimes at DSV, that means it takes us slightly longer to get things done. Like it takes us slightly longer to roll things out. It takes us slightly longer to commit to things. But when we do, they have the full support and commitment of the company. And I'm, I'm frankly, I feel like we learn a massive amount more by doing that because we examine every single thing that didn't work about it in that kind of uncompromising pursuit of a thing that really works. If you're uncompromising, you can look at something like global academia, which is fantastic. And then you have like an extraordinarily long list of things that don't work. And then we probably won't stop until we've addressed the vast majority of those. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's an example. I think we have like 10 cultural values of that kind where some people will be turned off by them and won't join the company as a result. Um, and that's a way of selecting for people um, and a way of developing mindsets that head towards shared outcomes. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. The, uh, a, a lot of it's like self-selecting in, especially if you're very transparent about it, people can see like, Oh, I like that. I don't like that. It makes it easy for them to, you know, if it, if it resonates with them, the, um, are there like rituals or anything that you guys do? Like they're like, you know, other than like a, a stand up, uh, essentially like where people just like post what they're up to and then get to it. Um, do you guys like do anything together? Like, is there like any practices that you guys have? I don't know, like a game night, whatever you want to think about it. We actually don't do very much fun stuff. Um, I think it might be, you know, one of our like greatest failings is an inability to do lots and lots of like fun social game things. Um, we always have a Christmas party um, because we have someone in the team called Santa. Um, and Makes it easy. Possible to refuse a Christmas invite from Santa. Um, yeah. We have quarterly offsites with the core team where um, we um, make sure that we were, we're like fully aligned. Um, and there are some like internal cultural practices around that. Um, we play loads of games as a group when we're in person. We have a Friday session um, with the whole cohort, with the whole uh, current batch of people every Friday where people talk about what, um, about like wins they've achieved or things that have got them closer to their journey and things that they need help with. And we also have a um, regular session. It's um, every, it's every, it's, it's a first month, three months, six months, nine months through the journey where a founder is grilled by their associate director. So they're brought in and they're made to explain from the very, very ground up what they're working on in plain English. So if you're doing synthetic lethality for oncology, you have to explain, first of all, what synthetic lethality is and why it's important in cancer and then how you're improving on the state of the art. And it's examined in minute um, by a multidisciplinary group of people on, uh, under that lens. And that's actually really fun. And um, we've just that's started awesome. a new, new tradition of bringing back um, former founders uh, or founders of current DSV portfolio companies to talk about some of the hard things that they've been through in starting their companies. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do because I th think we've got some just absolutely remarkable founders. I think actually starting a science company, if you are not a, like a professor and you're not doing a spin out, means you, you encounter a lot of bias and prejudice and it's mm -hmm. common to, to pretty much everyone. So there's a lot of relatability across different disciplines. Um, what else? When we're in person, we have this thing where we all do a single clap um, to celebrate things, just one clap perfectly in time. And it's for me kind of uh, analogous for us being in sync, um, but it's much harder to coordinate over Zoom. We did try for some time uh, to get everyone synced up doing a single clap, but it's just very annoying. So we gave up after a while. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think it, it's still pretty crazy that we can talk, you know, a world apart and still be more or less in sync. Um, so I have, I have one question, and then I have like some rapid fire questions, but I know we're coming up to the end. So I'll, 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 sh I'll shrink them a little bit. Um, I know you recently decided to become like a small giant. You guys aren't, you know, um, you know, scaling in a, a really, really big way. You're focused on, uh, there's like a three-part series on this, on your Medium post. Um, Small Giants is a book about how the, basically the fallacy of that you have to be big to be, have a great impact on people and, and the world. And so you guys are to some extent staying small and yet focusing on having a big impact at the same time. And so I'm curious, like, how did you guys identify, um, you know, 
more specifically, like the, the fact that that was right for you, like that, that was, that was true, true for you and your organization, what you wanted to do versus like taking what, you know, the, in a lot of ways, the conventional wisdom is just like, as big as you want, as big as you can, you know, hire a lot, you know, you know, you know, uh, open up different offices, even though they fail in different regions and stuff like that. And focus on the specific areas that you're, you're excited about. And for everyone, um, listen in, I'll have those in the link as well. So you can kind of like have like a much more expansive answer, but. I think it all comes from the fact that we believe it's possible to get to a correct answer mm. when building science companies, where in other venture capital arenas, it's not. So the basic assumption in venture capital is that you operate on a loss ratio, which means a small minority of your companies will return the majority. The Pareto rule is an example of that, mm. the 2080 rule. Um, and for us, it, it feels like we should be able to predict success. Um, for most of our companies and if we can't predict it then we we've done something wrong like we've built the wrong kind of company because you're building companies you can control a lot of the variables so as to make that true that's our kind of like fundamental belief mm. and so as a result playing the numbers game the kind of like spray and and, and pray kind of thing where you need like 100 companies a year to get your one unicorn um, becomes less appealing because actually you need to get deeper into the specific problems mm. The other, other thing is that you do need like a massive access to knowledge to be able to do this, but you don't need all of that knowledge to exist inside of your organization at any given time. You just need, for those people who are at the company, they need to distill and concentrate and, um, and, um, and um, formulate that logic in a way that other people can understand it uh, and that knowledge. And then we need to build resilient networks to the outside world and collaborations mm -hmm. that really work. So for example, when we build cancer companies uh, or camp companies tackling cancer, we work with Cancer Research UK. And so we don't need, you know, tens of thousands of researchers because Cancer Research UK has 40,000 researchers them, themselves and have like the largest independent cancer research uh, budget in the world. Um, we can draw on that network and that informal expertise through that kind of targeted alliance. It's the same with our partnership in, in agriculture with the Roslyn Institute and the University of Edinburgh and the BBSRC. The BBSRC is the UK's Research Council for Biology and Biological Sciences. The Roslyn Institute is where Dolly the Sheep was cloned. We can draw on this massive resource and we can do it in a way that benefits everybody at the end of that transaction. So I think it's partly about we, we're like really cocky about getting as close as we can to the right answer and partly about having a system that allows massively collaborative efforts to solve these hard problems. Mm. We've got our commercial agreement set up um, so that everybody who collaborates can benefit. And so we don't need to have this kind of big closed door thing. We can have this open, expansive network thing. Makes sense. The, um... Yeah, you do more with less and you get more for less while also uh, creating an environment where people are really excited. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it, it sounds really great. Um, right, so but, but, but for what it's worth, I think DSP will be huge. <laughs> uh, big in spirit, you'll be the Davids to the, to the Goliaths. That is the probability of, you know, one in 10 uh, paying for something or having a big impact. The conventional wisdom is the Goliath. And you'll be the David I with the stone who kills them. I, I genuinely believe that what we'll do, what we're doing at the moment, will grow to to absorb a meaningful proportion of corporate R and D and academic R and D. Like mm. the approaches that we're developing in terms of identifying specific approaches to solve particular problems, um, I just don't think there are that many organisations so ruthlessly focused on creating methodologies for doing that. Yeah, makes sense. The, um, all right, so transitioning to the my my lightning round questions because I know we're coming up to the end. Um, so. What, um, what is a question you have that you do not have the answer to? Like, it, it can be something you wonder about. It could be something that you're currently romanting on. Someone listening in usually comes with an idea on how to solve it. But uh, what is something that, it can be big or as small as you'd like. Um, but what is something that you wonder about that you do not have the answer to? What should replace carbon markets? It's mm. a good question. All right. Um, then... Are there any specific books or resources that you typically give to the founders going through your, your program? We give them a stack. Um, we give them the mom test, lean startup, the hard thing about hard things, all this, all the standard ones. Um, what else? We give them a long list of books. Uh, it's so long that I've had to write it down. Um, what's, a, what's an unusual thing that would be on there though? I think Thinking in Systems by Donala, Meadow, Donala Meadows is on there, which I think is one of the rarer ones, but great book. You guys should have like a, the, like a, like a book list for, on your website 
I don't know if I if it's there. I haven't seen it, but I, um, it's not my website. Awesome. It's in our company handbook. <laughs> okay, is is the handbook publicly accessible? No. <laughs> okay. We're, the... we're a clique. Everything happens behind that closed doors. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. I should I should publish it. Um, I like it. I think it's a good list. It's kind of crowdsourced, um, mm-hmm. refined over time. Yeah. I love books. I love reading it. I have like a giant library over there. Um, oh, you can see it, but, um, sure you do. I'm sure you do. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, uh, two last questions. Um, you know, you have that question that people ask, uh, what would you say to your younger self? Right. And, uh, I would like to change that and make it like, what, what do you think that your older self would say to you right now? Like, what, what do you, th- what advice do you think that, that you'd give yourself that you would, that you think the future you would wish you were following or, Anything that you'd say to yourself. Keep up the good work. You're great. I don't know. <laughs> Give me mm. anything. I, I mean, I think my older self will tell me something I already know, but I don't think about often enough, which is that um, I can be harder on myself when I feel good about things and I should be gentler with myself when I feel bad about things. Mm. That's, that's, that's a good one. Um, all right. Last question is for, for everyone listening in, what are what are some some things that you could use help with? Where can people go? People up. Okay, so one thing is that we're massively into climate markets and climate fintech. So if you're a massive nerd in financial products, uh, please get in touch. Uh, another is that we are um, spinning out a bunch of cancer companies at the moment. So if you care about therapeutics and cancer, come and talk to me. Um, a third is that we're about to launch a fundraise for our work in pharmaceuticals. So if you care about ground up systematized approaches to curing diseases and who doesn't frankly then please get in touch um but more generally like check out the site there's loads of stuff going on in terms of opportunities um we have 30 portfolio companies they're all looking for stuff all the time so if you think you can help with any kind of early stage science venturing stuff please reach out hello everybody that was down with deep science ventures thanks for joining me today and i hope everyone enjoyed this episode if you liked it disliked it what have you let me know i do appreciate feedback moving forward we have a a big slate of interviews coming up but if there's someone you would like me to interview or see or talk about what have you just poke me it's lowell at learnwithlowell.com and you'll get a hold of me or add a comment i read all of them